Welcome to War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I am Hunter Cates. Today we will be reviewing the movie Birdman, talking about actor comebacks, and closing out with a couple recommendations for you. But before we get started with that, Chris, people are probably wondering, assuming they're even listening, why are they doing another podcast? Hunter, why are we doing a podcast? Why does the world need? The truth is, is that the world does not need another podcast. The only reason people do anything is because they think they can do it better. So we're presumably there's a lot of, there's a bit of narcissism going into this is we just think that we're we're more inter- interesting and entertaining. The best way to look at it is the world doesn't need another movie podcast any more than it needs another proctologist. What makes your proctologist better than my proctologist? Maybe his hands are more supp- supple. Maybe he's more a generous person. Maybe uh, he has less waiting times. I don't know. What you're looking for in a podcast may be different than what I look for in a podcast. And so this is uh, Chris and I's answer to the movie podcast. It's, it, I think we're, we've come up with some ideas that are going to be different than what you might have heard elsewhere, and then maybe some that are traditional. What ultimately comes down to it is the quality of our podcasting skills and the quality of our insights and also the suppleness of our hands. That's right, Hunter. We're just a bunch of amateur proctologists with some big ideas about movies. So bend on over as we begin to talk about Birdman. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy who used to be Birdman? I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Hold the mask off! You do hold the mask off! Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. We should have done that reality show they offered us. Shut up. You know I'm right. You're so nice. Hey, what's up? Why don't you try to rest a little bit? The Oscar nominations came out, like, what, two weeks ago? And some people were upset with them, but by and large, it was pretty much what everyone expected, I would say. Um, one of the big... One of the big people I think who got nine or ten nominations was, of course, Birdman, which for a front runner, I would say it's probably one of the most bizarre, uh, peculiar front runners there's ever been. Uh, and and front runner may not even be the right word because I don't think it'll take home the prize, but certainly it got a whole lot of nominations. For me, it was uh, what I knew going in was the cast, but primarily Michael Keaton because I'm a big Michael Keaton fan. And then just the absurdity of the story and that it was a comedy by uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu, which I was skeptical that he could pull off a comedy given I don't even think there's really humor in anything he's done before. It's always been very bleak. Yeah, I, I would say that my expectations were a bit different than yours. Uh, I I wasn't so much skeptical about Inuritu doing a, uh, a comedy as much as I was sort of thrilled that uh, he was trying to approach something different because I think he had been down that road of just this miserable kind of gross lackluster sort of worldview, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that it was completely diminishing returns. Like I, I think Amoris Peros was a really uh, great, interesting sort of uh, lively film Um 21 Grimms is a movie that I have a soft spot for, uh, that, you know, I, I think I like it more than, than most people do, but it was sort of a, it was one of those films that I saw in high school that sort of, it was the first movie of that kind that I had seen. And it really sort of opened my eyes to 
you know, what you could do with, uh, with film, I guess, mostly with what it did editorially, definitely a flawed film. I know it's a film that a lot of people hate. Um, a lot of people, uh, I believe, you know, accused of being too, uh, just too burdensome with being a depressing Try, yeah, it's it's actually going out of its way to be depressing. All I remember about it is just Sean Penn and Naomi Watts just banging. So I, mean, I guess that I guess that just shows, like you saw it as a high schooler. I can only see it as a high schooler. I can only approach it from the perspective of a high schooler. But then, uh, Babel is one of those movies that actually, after seeing Birdman, um, I fully intended to go back and rewatch it, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. Like you couldn't, um, like you had it going and then the credits came up and you stopped or you just couldn't even put it in the Blu-ray? No, I, I like I had it in the player and I couldn't uh, switch from from the cable box to the, the Blu-ray player to uh, to watch it. Because just that mere act is so depressing, just knowing what you're getting ready to experience. Well, I mean, it, it was a movie that I was really disappointed in uh, when I saw it. I had really high hopes uh, going into it. It was the first movie of, of his that, uh, I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. And I remember I saw it at like a press screening or something and, uh, leaving thinking kind of the same feeling I had when I saw, um, you know, the, the star Wars prequels was right. like, I want, I willed myself into liking it, even though I knew I hated it. Um, so which you're is almost like a child of an abusive drunken parent. With which would be actually a perfect character for Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu's exactly. uh, typical films, and so uh, I didn't see Beautiful. Beautiful just looked like more of more of that, just not not mixing up a bunch of stories, but just one guy really suffering. Didn't like I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Even like, and, and that was even fewer steps because it was just sitting on Netflix, and I could. All not. you had to do was hit play, and he, yeah. And here's the thing about that is. Uh, I like Javier Bardem. There's no one, I, I, I think no actor or anything that I want to just see sit and suffer for three straight hours. I just don't see the appeal of that, of just watching someone, whether you like them, hate them, whatever, just sitting there and, and suffering. It, it's kind of like the passion of Javier Bardem. Why is anyone going to want to see that? Right. So th- which brings us to Birdman. Um, I was, I was excited because it's, Hey, it's Michael Keaton, um, a guy that I feel like we don't see all that often. I mean, the last thing that I can remember him being in other than this was, I believe he had a small role in RoboCop. I didn't yes. see RoboCop. And he was, tr- and he was actually really good in RoboCop, but RoboCop was just, uh, it was right off the assembly line as okay. far as action remakes go. So I was, I was excited for, um, Michael Keaton to have, you know, as sort of a starring role again, he's, he's one of those guys that whenever he does show up in something, it, it sort of, heightens the the film to another another level for me like i love i love his little cameos in jackie brown and out of sight uh and and just sort of you know he he brings a real he's got a a quality to him that i don't think a lot of people have um he kind of you know he's he's one part goofball he's one part uh everyday normal serious guy and uh so he's almost it almost feels like he is a leading man who has been pushed into a more character actor uh, role. Like they'll bring him in because he's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, when was other than, do you know off the top of your head, what was the last thing he had where he was uh, it, like, wherever he was the star, he was actually, and I haven't seen it yet, but it's on Netflix. It's called the Merry gentleman and he directed it and it's, he's playing an assassin who's got one last job and then he, you, you know, meets up with some, 
young ingenue and becomes, or actually she wasn't even ingenue, just some young innocent and starts to rethink his, his life. So that sounds, uh, again, yeah, yeah, I, I, some script that someone just found and decided to film. I think I just watched that movie. Really? Okay. And I think that was his last. Yeah. You were, you were describing it and then I saw it. Oh yeah, exactly. But, but, uh, one more thing about my anticipation is I was actually worried it was going to suck given that Inurito had never done comedy or anything even remotely resembling comedy. And also it was kind of one of those things I was, it seemed so perfect, the combination of factors that it had to be bad or it had to not be as good as it could have been. It, it had to almost inevitably be disappointing. I definitely knew going in that it was going to be, I was going to have a strong reaction to it in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I, I think a lot of people have, I believe is it Keith Phipps or Scott Tobias of, the dissolve had a really scathing takedown of it. Um, just like he, he didn't, didn't enjoy the film at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly, I would rather, rather see a film that has that sort of reaction, um, than, uh, something where it's just, you know, I, I feel like his last few films have been like, Oh, here he goes again. That's going to be, you know, like there have been people who have loved it. There have been people who have hated it. It hasn't really, um, just sat mellow with most of the people that I've I've spoken to about it. But I would say, by and large, it set out it what it set out to do. It accomplished, and people realized that they appreciate it, they like it. I was actually wouldn't have been surprised if it just crashed and burned. Now I believe it did pretty well on the festival circuit prior to even being released in limited run. So I guess that gave me a little bit more uh, appreciation for it. But it kind of seemed like one of those that was just going to be all hype and ultimately fall flat. So I was I was pleased that I and enjoyed it as much as I did. So going into it, you, you were a little skeptical. What was it that sort of, uh, well, let, let me rephrase that. I was skeptical going into, into it being released whenever I went to go see it. Cause I saw it a couple of weeks later, I was fully expecting it to be terrific, but whenever it was released and you know, everyone seemed to like it, uh, the reviews were consistent. I thought, okay, you know, finally, I'm, I'm finally getting around to something I really want to see. And it's going to be as good as I anticipated being. So let's talk about Birdman from a technical standpoint to begin with. Um, you read Alejandro Gonzalez and two is doing a movie that feels like one take. He grabbed Terrence Malick's guy. He grabbed Alfonso Caron's guy, really more Alfonso Caron's guy. He's been with him forever. Um, and does this, you know, sort of single trick take, uh, sort of film. Um, so I, I think it's one of those things that I was a little skeptical of going in. Um, I mean, I love Emmanuel Lubetsky. Um, I, I think he, uh, he does great work. He's always done a great job with sort of these long unbroken, uh, takes following characters around. I mean, as far back uh, for as far as I can remember is, uh, is Itumama Tambien. Like there's some amazing moments, uh, in, in that film of, you know, just sort of following characters, not even, uh, not even main characters, just sort of characters that are in the environment, you know, follow a waitress back to a kitchen, uh, see some stuff, come back, rejoin a conversation. Well, uh, and then the whole single shot thing has gotten to the point wherever it's almost, it, it's not even almost, it is a cliche. And so what I appreciated about uh, Birdman is that it all felt so fluid. I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned, I, did, I didn't even know about the single shot thing. And then whenever I got in, I, I was watching, I was like, wow, I, I, okay, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to do the rope thing wherever there's no cuts. Yeah. And, but it felt fluid. It didn't f- feel gimmicky because so often you, you'll see really in many ways, inferior films thinking that if they just do the single take thing that all of a sudden, Oh my gosh, 
I'm so this, I'm this is so impressive. Well, this like, is so smart. Yeah, I it's think, like a guitar solo in a really bad song. I I yeah, I think there is something to above anything story has to come first and then technique uh follows. So um well then in that regard was there any point to the single shot beyond just hey this is kind of cool. So that's that's exactly what I wanted to get to. I I was a little skeptical going in even though uh Emmanuel Lubetsky shot it um you know I I was had faith in him but just wasn't sure if it was going to be something where it's like oh you could have done it another way. I think it really I think it really works to uh the advantage of the film. Like it here here's the thing that I like about it. Um, for the most part, you're following Michael Keaton's character, Riggin Thompson around. Um, he's this sort of washed up, uh, middle-aged actor. Uh, he's putting on, um, he's putting on this play that he, he wrote, he's producing, he's directing, he's starring in. Um, and there is definitely this veneer of, you know, a little bit of depression or, or whatever, which I think is common to, you know, in, in Yuritu's films. Um, but the, uh, it, it doesn't feel overwhelming like, like it has in, in his other films. I think he cuts it with comedy a mm-hmm. lot, uh, which I think really works. But what I was trying to get to about, about the, the single take, it really feels like you're sort of, you're following this character around, uh, Riggin Thompson, you're in his head, um, and really sort of seeing the world through, uh, through his eyes, like the, and and the place where I think it's really effective is whenever you have jumps in time, it to me feels like you're, you know, you're in the mind of this manic depressive uh, character who's, he's either everything's great. He's on top of the world or he's, I hate, Mm -hmm. I hate what I'm doing. I hate everyone. um, I hate everything. And, you know, just going, going off the rails and there's these beautiful moments. I mean, I think the first time where, where you have this compression of time where after Edward Norton has been sort of added to the, uh, the cast of this play by, uh, by necessity, um, you leave Regan Thompson's dressing room, you go down the hall and then suddenly Edward Norton, who has just been called, is standing there on the stage. You don't even realize you're so far away because it's, you know, just walking up. You don't even realize it's him. And there's sort of this moment of like, it's magic in a way. Like it's magic that cinematic magic that, uh, you know, I feel like I, at least I don't feel as much anymore. Like I get so caught up in the like, Oh, I know how they, you know, how they did pulled off that little trick or that's a great, you know, I'll be like, Oh, that was a great edit, but I'm thinking about it from a technical standpoint. Whereas this like legitimately, um, it felt it, like part of the movie, not as well, it, something that it you would took, eat. it took a moment for me to digest it mm-hmm. and to realize what was going on. Um, so it made it that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that happens several times throughout the film. Um, and I think it works really well. It, uh, it works to kind of, in my mind, it feels like you're, you're inside Riggin Thompson's head and, um, you know, you're cutting out the stuff that he feels is unimportant. You're focusing in on the things that he does find important and really like living with him in those moments, be it the highs or the lows. And, um, it, it really has a nice quality to it that, uh, I think if you, if it was a more traditional, you know, if it's just scene to scene cut up, it, you wouldn't you wouldn't get that. And the other thing I think is you get in his manic moments, um, particularly with that score, that you know very sparse 
uh, drum score, uh, you get this feeling of almost, you know, at least I, I was getting this feeling of anxiety. You know, it's it's almost like leaning forward, walking. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like at any time, it's just you're gonna trip up and fall over, and it's all going to fall apart. You know, it's sort of um, a guy spinning spinning plates, keeping all the plates going with. Uh, with this energy and, and I actually okay and that and that's a that's a terrific point is the 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 analogy of the guy spinning the plates because I don't think it was necessary and that doesn't mean I don't like it that doesn't mean I don't you know I don't appreciate that the the what I think it adds to it is that it adds a stage quality it makes it theatrical because anything can go wrong in fact uh reading if you look on IMDb it talks about how several times they would do it and they would keep track of who screwed up and they would have these you know 10 minute takes or longer and uh, they kept track, and so it was usually Emma, uh, Emma Stone, Emma, Emma Stone, who messed up the most compared to every other person. But like I said, it's like watching something on stage. Wherever anything can happen, it can go wrong at any point in time, and you don't have that 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 organic nature of it, that uh, that reality, that that sense of live impending doom at any second. You don't get that with film. Inevitably, you don't get that with film unless they create that with the edit within the story itself. But as far as just like watching performers and the potential of those performers screwing up, that's, you only see that in a live performance. And so it almost kind of created a, a live performance vibe. And so that's why I appreciate it. And since it was about the theater, you know, that was something yeah, I, that, I, I that think added it, to it. it. It fits well that way as, as well. Like, I mean, ultimately, is it a gimmick? Yeah, it's it's still sort of a gimmick, but I think it works. Yeah. Um, well, and one and another, one more thing I want to say about is, is interesting is uh, Inurito had apparently had dinner with Mike Nichols uh, regarding this and said what he's planning on doing. Mike Nichols said, "Don't do it. You're crazy because comedy is all about the edit and the speed and the in the urgency, and so it, it's about the cut. You can't. I mean, that's crazy. <clears throat> and what's funny about that to me is Mike Nichols was also a stage director, and then he was also a live performance comedian. So maybe he just didn't understand how it could work with comedy, but." Or conversely, maybe, I mean, do you think that's, that would, uh, it worked in Birdman for the most part, but do you think that, that would be a legitimate concern to think that something, a film, a filmed co- comedic segment couldn't be stretched out for lengths at a time? Does that sound like something that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen? I mean, I, I think it's just a matter of everything, like to go back to the plate analogy, everything has to continue to work, you know, because so much of comedy is about timing. When you have the ability to edit, you have the ability to add or remove a beat as necessary and and you know kind of meticulously craft the way a joke lands um whereas with this obviously you don't have that luxury uh, i i think he pulls it off for the most part um i think uh i think all around the cast gives a pretty amazing uh i'll give a pretty amazing performance uh well and, and yeah and, and and you know maybe it's the is the final as the period on the end of the sentence regarding the technique is it is very much an ensemble piece and it couldn't work without Every single character, even if, if it's not really about them, every single person really bringing it in their character. Let me ask you this. How did you feel about the scenes, though, that we spend outside of Michael Keaton's world? Um, I think most of these were, were spending with Emma Stone and Edward Norton. Um, there's a weird scene with uh, Naomi Watts, and I cannot think of the other uh, actress's name. But the one who played his uh, – oh, the one who played his – the woman who was supposedly his baby mama. Yeah. 
yeah. How did you how did you feel about those moments? I mean, See, with- here's here's my thing about things like that is I would actually say that those are a mark against the film. Now it's not one of those things I'm not going to write a scathing review or drop a star rating because of it. But I think it, it's it's to me I liked them, I enjoyed them. But if you're wanting something that's consistent, there were a lot of loose ends that were not tied up in this picture, and so. They were they they were fun diversions. I enjoyed it. They told you something about the world they occupied, that being the theater world, the entertainment world. And then since that's what the picture overarching was about, was an analogy for this is the way the entertainment industry works. I enjoyed them from that perspective. But like like we just talked about, a lot of loose ends weren't tied. It seems like Edward Norton just disappears maybe 80% into the picture. So I liked them. I enjoyed them. Um, and I'm not going to allow them to drop a star ranking given that you know those threads weren't tied. But um, so it's one of those things. It's, it's to me, it's just I, I enjoyed them as additions. I would have liked if those if if we found out what happened, how those stories culminated. But uh, it 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 did kind of feel like they just decided either in the scripting process or the editing process. You know what? This is just about Riggins, so we're just going to drop these other things. See, I I wish they would have decided that wholeheartedly though, because to me they they did they distracted quite a bit. Uh, even even watching it for a second time. Um, particularly the just weird lesbian dressing right. room scene, um, really unnecessary. Even honestly, even some of the scenes between, uh, where it's just Reagan and another character, um, I either wanted more or none at all. Um, him and his, as, as we are calling her baby mama, mm-hmm. um, it didn't really like, it felt like just throwing another, um, uh, you know, obstacle form. Yeah. Yeah. Throwing, throwing a stick in the spokes just because, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really pay off to anything. It doesn't really feel like great character development. Honestly, I would rather see more Amy Ryan, like take out, take out the parts with, uh, Riggins baby mama or potential baby mama or liar who claims to be his potential baby mama. Spoiler alert. Uh, and take out those and give us a couple more scenes between, uh, Michael Keaton and Amy Ryan, because I thought that was a really interesting, uh, really dynamic, you know, sort of um, relationship between, you know, these, these two adults that are divorced, but still, you know, they're, they're talking they're getting along. Um, I mean, I think a lot of that is to the credit of Amy Ryan. I mean, I think she, I, I have said this before. I, if Amy Ryan could play just the, matriarch of every family in every film, I think it would be a better, uh, it would be a better picture. Um, I, I cannot get enough of her. And also, I mean, give her, turn her into new Liam Neeson too. make her the, uh, the badass, uh, got to get my husband back lady. I think she could pull it off. I, yeah, I think, I think you're on to something. Uh, okay. I, I guess we can't really talk about let's, do you think that anyone was miscast? Anyone that didn't need to be in this? I mean, not here's, I, I don't think so. And I, I think uh, I was a little concerned with Zach Galifianakis, just seeing that he was in, uh, he was in the film. I, uh, I guess I have a little bit of Galifianakis rash. Like I've seen him do that sort of character so many times, mm-hmm. um, that, that you think of when you think of Zach Galifianakis, which honestly, like I still absolutely love as like a, a weird alt comedy stand-up comedian, uh, sort of character, but it, he's playing the same, the same thing in every single movie. When you think he does, about it, um, you know, even though the, the big story about this was Michael Keaton, uh, Naomi Watts, she was, 
she's not really been a, a huge star. It kind of looked like she was on that way and then just kind of leveled out. Same with Edward Norton. So the only one who's really mainstream, I'd say, at this point, would be Zach Galifianakis. He he is oddly the biggest draw, which I think is unfortunate because well, the biggest um, draw maybe in uh, the, from uh, I mean from a mainstream point of view, like yeah. I mean you show this to my parents, and well, you show it to my parents, they're probably going to say I'm not going to see it because that weird orange guy is in it. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, other people they might say, "Oh, hey, it's the guy that you know played Mr. Mom and Batman and Zach Galifianakis." Yeah, let's go see that. Uh, maybe I don't know. It, it's it's he's probably the most he has most credibility with teenagers. But what's kind of interesting is he shows so much restraint in this role. That's yeah. that's what I I loved. I mean, both times I couldn't like I couldn't get over just how much of an actual character he was. You know, he wasn't the Zach Galifianakis bumbling fool. I'm going to make semi androgynous mm-hmm. fart joke sort of, you know, he wasn't that guy at all. He felt uh, like a very uh, different, well-rounded character that uh, I, I thought really, and and there was maybe, uh, there's a little bit of, um, you know, almost bromance between the two of them mm-hmm. that, that was actually felt touching and not, not like a, not like a joke of like, Oh, Hey, maybe, maybe we're, well, do you think it, do you think it was stunt casting that just happened to work? I don't know. I mean, honestly, my, it, it, because my problem with him is to me, he's a loose cannon that I can't, I, I never know what to expect from him. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I, th- this, is, I guess proves to me, Zach Galifianakis, Zach Galifianakis, okay. Uh, is that who? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, because uh, generally I expect him to play the Zach Galifianakis character. Because to me, uh, I don't I don't really view him as a loose cannon. I view him as a very predictable cannon that explodes a lot. Because I was just thinking, had this movie been made seven years ago, that character wouldn't be played by Jack Black. Hmm. And that's kind of what I... Th- and okay. I I mean, I guess I'm I'm... Coming to it from a, a point of view of like see, seeing him do interviews and stuff where he does it in that character. That's what I mean by loose is like uh-huh. uh, he, he's someone who I don't um, and, and you're probably more correct in your description there. That, that's actually a, a good sort of analog. Um, but he generally you never know when he's going to be serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and generally he's not going to be serious. He's, he always seems to have a sort of. Um, Andy Kaufman sort of feel to him where it's but like, again, that's kind of, that's like Jack Black. You know what I mean? Like yeah. They're, no, they're, it, they're, it they're always, they're always doing, they're always doing their act. And so I guess I kind of get tired of that stuff. Do you get tired of that stuff? Yes. When it, when it comes to a performance in, you know, film or television, I get, I would, I would say yes. I mean, I think as a, uh, as a performer i think it's interesting like i mm-hmm. i find it fascinating that someone can remain in character like that mm-hmm. all the time uh but also frustrating when it's like you know sitting down doing a a genuine interview and um it's right and and so not to speak ill of the dead but i'm reminded of a inside the actor studio with robin williams wherever at, at this word's overused but he literally couldn't focus on the questions. He would go off and do some kind of comic routine or a song or a dance or any number of things to answer every single one of James Lipton's questions. And again, you know, again, not to speak ill of the dead, but it was growing pretty frustrating because I'd like to hear about his technique. I'd like to hear about his life, about his, about his career, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of how I feel with Jack Black. Robin Williams had the benefit of being funny. 
so I, it was more excusable. But I, maybe I just don't like Jack Black. And are we talking about Jack Black or Zach Galifianakis? Well, no, I'm all in one. You know, okay. I mean, I kind of think that Zach Galifianakis is this. He, this he, kind of seasons. He, is this he, seasons Jack. Black. Okay, okay. That's and see. I I honestly really like Zach Galifianakis. I really like Jack Black. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a well. Bear in mind that I'm a, just a crusty, grumpy asshole. Yeah, that, so if that's we take fair. It in, so <laughs> that, no, that that's fair. Um, but I I was worried seeing that he was in this because I was afraid it was just going to be the same note that you know I I think Melissa McCarthy is sort of the female iteration of that right Exa- now. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's uh, um, okay. So I I was I was very surprised by Zach Galifianakis' performance. I really liked it. Uh, Emma Stone, I also really liked. Um, I guess because. I, and this may be, this may be inaccurate, but I kind of have this feeling, um, of her. She's typecast in my mind Mm -hmm. as, um, and I don't mean she's typecast as, but my mind typecasts her as sort of a strong, um, independent kick-ass sort of, uh, snarky girl. I liked her even more in this because, uh, it felt like once again, something that I hadn't really seen from her. Uh, before a, an odd vulnerability um, in in that character, which I think the character is a little underdeveloped in in, in some ways, but I think that's to to my earlier point of show me more of uh, show me more of that family dynamic. Well, and yeah, and to that point, I kind of think that I mean you can't really look at this picture except for how those characters relate to the Michael Keaton character, and so in that regard, I I think that her character especially was she was a foil for him. And so given that she was a foil for him, a addition to his struggle, what what we got was more than what you could have could have anticipated. Like it may have seemed like if this were truly an ensemble where ever every single character had their own independent storyline that we are following, then yes, it was a little underdeveloped. But if I feel like if you look at her as just like a function of his world and his universe, that we got quite no, a bit I, from I, it. I, you know, I, I mean? think Both she the works character well. and it's, the performance. Yeah, I don't think uh you know, I don't think He's trying to do a Robert Altman film. He's not trying to do mm-hmm. Nashville or exactly. something like that. Um, but it feels like at times he sort of dips a toe, and that doesn't doesn't totally work or pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then would it have been better in your mind if had it just been a, a film about theater in general? And then no, see, I, I think it would have been better had it been more directly tied to the Regan Thompson character. That's that's my feeling. Like uh, theater through his eyes. Um, and I guess you, you kind of need, you need his interaction. You definitely need his interaction with these other characters, um, for, you know, some of the things that in your E2, and I guess we should also give credit to, I, I do not know their names off the top of my head. They're the three other screenwriters, um, on, on the film. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of, uh, walk this line of, comparing Riggin Thompson who who seems to be a uh curmudgeon-y, old washed up actor um and and drawing connections between him and this millennial uh sort of cultural thing of everything is on social media everything is like there's several moments where he's like I don't have a twitter I don't rubble 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 um uh, but they're sort of drawing like he's just as much of a narcissist as in his own way, yeah. Yeah. 
He's the only, and, and actually, that's kind of a that's kind of it speaks about the entertainment, but also I guess speaks about our culture in general. Is everyone's a narcissist? It's just it, it it lives in different ways. And with our generation, the millennial generation, it exists in 140 characters, whereas with his, it exists in him writing and directing his own play, writing and directing his own play, uh, and keeping, starring, yeah, keeping that cocktail napkin in his pocket um, as a reminder of I'm a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because Raymond Carver gave him that cocktail napkin that said, you did great, kid. Uh, he he kept it with him as his, like, sort of, at any time he could pull it out and be like, oh, well, you're, you didn't talk shit, talk shit about me? Well, look at this. Um, there, there's this weird, and, and ultimately, like, I think the things that I liked about, about the film boil down to, uh, you know, playing with this manic, depressive narcissist. Like that's that's ultimately what the film is to me. When it when it's working, those are the things that work. Those are the things that uh, it's focusing on. I think it gets a little off topic here and there, and a little little loosey goosey. Um, but you know, by the end, you kind of have this realization that by embracing Twitter and and all of these things, like he's no, it's not like he's lost anything. He's still the sort of narcissist douchebag that he was before. Right. Um, narcissist douchebag with a heart of gold. Can we, can we yes, coin uh, that? Well, uh, yeah, I guess you were actually coining because that's a, that's a pre-existing thing. I'm, sh- I'm certain that that's existed as long as stories have been told. I mean, look at Hercules, right? <laughs> Her- right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not narcissistic, narcissistic, narcissistic douchebag, Edward Norton's character. Um, I think, I don't think anyone else was nominated for an acting Oscar besides Michael Keaton in this picture. You in prior conversations have pointed out that you think that he just, mops the floor with Michael Keaton. I think he does. I mean, I think he's definitely doing the more showy performance. Um, so there's a little bit of something to, uh, this idea that Michael Keaton's character is this washed up actor. You know, he's mostly known for being a a superhero in the late eighties, early nineties. And, uh, then you have Edward Norton, who is this sort of, uh, just ripped beautiful man he's a he's a veteran of uh of broadway that's he he you know goes up and dies on stage every night essentially um it's a much showier role it's a much showier performance and actually and i think in many ways and maybe every actor in this picture was doing this in some way shape or form but edward norton is very much playing a heightened critique of himself i think because he has a reputation of being difficult to work with and so, and he's smart enough to be aware that that's what he was doing. And that's fair. And, and I guess here was my feeling, particularly the after the first viewing, um, the first time I saw the film was I felt like Edward Norton acted Michael Keaton under the table in every single scene they were in together. But at the same time, um, it kind of felt like that was necessary for that relationship between those two characters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause one of them like is one of them is playing the quote actor. And then the other one's playing the movie star pretending to be an actor and trying really, really hard. And so inevitably he's going to get shot down and shouted down and overwhelmed. Yeah. And, and so I, I will say I wasn't totally blown away by Michael Keaton's performance the first time. Um, but I was okay with it because it felt like the right, it, it almost felt like he was not giving the best performance he could, but he was giving the right performance for the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing it again, there were more, you know, little subtle nuances to particularly like when he's alone, little things that, that really felt great. And, um, uh, about, about his, uh, his role. I mean, Norton, he, does he choose a scenery? Yes. 
but that's also what uh, what his character would do. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it works even if it's only on only from a almost meta performance level. Um, I, I like the relationship between those those two characters. Um, let's let's get into a um, little bit of spoilers. I'd like to talk about the the end of this film mm-hmm. um, and sort of uh, what I guess. I don't. I don't know if you have an answer to what you think happened. I have ideas, and um, upon you know viewing the film again, those ideas are all pretty much crushed. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think maybe it's it's one of those things that uh, is more an interesting talking point than a, like here is here is the conclusion that right. I don't think that it, I, I think this is one of those pictures that there is no correct answer. And usually that irritates me. I think that a, a, a filmmaker writers, et cetera, et cetera, should say, this is how it ends. Now, granted there's some, there's room for ambiguity, but if it's just doesn't end, then I think that's, that's a cop out this. It didn't, it didn't really bother me so much because your your interpretation could be completely valid. My interpretation. Could well, let me let, let's get in that. What did? How did you? How did you view it? I kind of think that I honestly I can buy one of two things. Is either this is it was all in his head, and so the, that kind of manic thing that we were saying described the theater was strictly just this. This was his universe. That theater was his brain, and so we're just taking a journey through his brain, and to, and you know looking at all these little subplots within that. And then, uh, and, and so when he dies, you know, like maybe he didn't even die at the end, maybe it's just existing within his brain. So he just go, you know, it just ends. Mm -hmm. Um, conversely, I mean, I, I could buy the idea that maybe he is, he has supernatural abilities and just the world is so consumed in, in, in other things. So consumed in the culture of celebrity that they don't, that they don't notice, uh, don't notice his super they don't notice those other things okay so let's talk about the the supernatural abilities for for a moment um i'm sort of of the opinion that the supernatural abilities don't exist um the only time you ever see him doing anything be it uh you know moving a little cigarette um uh, case or trashing the shit out of his uh dressing room or um, levitating. He's alone. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple moments. There's two moments in particular that I can think of where he's doing supernatural things. And then a character sort of lets on that. Maybe he isn't. Um, the first one being when it, he's trashing his dressing room, Zach Galifianakis, character comes in and you see that he's just like throwing a TV. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing. It's just <clears throat> so in his head. In his head, he's just performing a physical action. But he's he's got such an aggrandized view of himself that it's yeah. actually abilities, superpowers. So maybe he thinks he is Birdman because we never really find out. Well, clearly, what Birdman's powers are. So maybe he just literally thinks he's Birdman. Well, the Birdman's powers are cacaing. Yes, obviously, of course, yes. because because he he gives a little. Yes, you're Birdman. You are a god. Full of shit. And I would assume flight. Um, although he's got those talon feet too, so he could probably. But maybe I really mean, yeah. So maybe, and so that's the thing is, uh, yeah, maybe there was the levitating. He just thought he was Birdman. Um, but so yeah, the other the other moment is there's that moment when he uh, he gets drunk, he wakes up, and then Birdman. You you finally it's finally revealed that 
oh gosh, the voice that's been talking to him the whole time, it's Birdman, which obviously was a pretty yeah pretty obvious thing all along yeah Yeah. um and then then he does his little his little flight thing and um then he flies into the theater and then you you pan to the left and you see a cabbie running after him Mm -hmm. um saying hey you didn't you didn't pay which you know makes you lead you to believe that uh oh he was driven there in a cab he was just hung over and this is all in his head um so to to think that to the end i have a little bit of trouble believing that um he does have superpowers i honestly i would have agreed with you except for the fact and maybe you know this is just a drug drug induced haze but uh but emma emma stone's characters watching him and, fly off and that is or watching something fly and off. that is the thing that is the thing that i guess i have the most trouble with um the the way that i coped with that is initially i thought okay well maybe maybe everything leading up to the gunshot is in his head Mm-hmm. And he's actually uh, because you have this this meteor motif that that pops up in the I think in the very beginning and then in a in a couple other places. Um, and so my initial thought was okay, um, the meteor is a bullet flying through his head when he pulls the trigger and blows his nose off at the end. Maybe he actually did kill himself, and then that whole thing at the end is sort of the final moments of, of him as this narcissist saying, Oh, and then everyone loves me. Again. Right. He's an like, artist and he's a star and his family. Loves yeah. Him. Because there, there's that um, great little moment when he's talking to Amy Ryan and he says, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. Is it Farrah? Who died at the um, same day as Michael Jackson? Farrah Fawcett. He, he's talking to, to Amy Ryan and he says, you know, Farrah Fawcett died the same day as, same day as Amy Ryan. And he has um, this sort of, you can tell that it's going through his head that like, if I don't do anything great, I'm, I'm going to have that moment where he I, dies in the same, fl- I, and he says as much dies in the same plane as George, as, Clooney. As George Clooney. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking, okay, well, this is his like his last thoughts um, are that I didn't kill myself. I have become uh, this you know this great this great character, and I will I will live again. And now I'll go fly off to heaven. And, and now Birdman. and now I'll go. I don't know. Birdman four. Yes, he will do. Um, seeing it a second time, I don't know if that really works. I don't know. Um, I guess the one thing the one thing that does hold up to that theory is um if he did kill himself uh but the media attention was as big as it was then he successfully didn't become the guy that died on the plane with George Clooney he seized the moment and died in a flame of glory um so that people would remember him um I don't know if that's all that satisfying. My, yeah, my thing is, I think the theory you just espoused is probably the right one. If there is, if if we can even call it right, but it's kind of like the spinning top at the end of Inception of where they're they're just going to throw something in there to maybe derail you. What you say makes the most sense, and so I think maybe Emma Stone just looking up into the heavens was a spinning top. <laughs> Whereas we know what the ending yeah. is, we know how the movie ends. You know, no controversy there, but okay, we'll, we'll still throw something in there to make you 
question what you yeah, just and, saw. And I think I think that ending is the most problematic thing of of the entire film for me. Like just it doesn't it's not satisfying. It's not it doesn't feel totally necessary, other than I guess if he didn't kill himself to um say, Oh hey, look, um the what is what is the subtitle of this movie? The unexpected virtue of, of ignorance. ignorance. <clears throat> yeah. So maybe, and I guess that was the the title of the article written about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe he does have he becomes a uh, he does live and becomes a Twitter celebrity and all of that. But if that's the case, well, he already was because he was walking around, you know, in his underwear. So he already achieved that level of notoriety. That's true. Um, but but that but that was more a digestible like that's a Facebook newsfeed sort of right, thing. Right? Yeah, he didn't want to be a Twitter celebrity. He wanted to be a quote artist, and so the big thing was that uh, New York Times review, wherever the critic who hated him so much just hated what he represented. But uh, this is the other thing: um, she gets up and leaves like immediately after uh, the the gunshot. Mm-hmm. So it also feels a little odd to me that. Uh, she would write such a great, uh, you know, albeit she's still being a dick. Well, no, no. And then exactly. So that kind of supports the theory that this is all a dream. It's all in his head. And, or at least the hospital scene is all in his head. Mm -hmm. What? Okay. We can't really talk about this without talking about Michael Keaton and not just his performance, but just what he represents to this picture. Uh, before Variety did a, a report wherever they like saw how much a star affects person's desire to see a picture. And so the one that ranked the highest, ironically, was people really wanted to see the interview because they thought the story of the interview combined with Seth Rogen and James Franco sounded really cool. Second place was the story of Birdman combined with Michael Keaton. Hmm. And th- we're talking about a guy who hasn't been, quote, relevant. James Franco and Seth Rogen are, quote, relevant right now, whereas he is, hasn't necessarily been relevant since the early 90s. But yet people still really wanted to see this or were at least intrigued when they were handed a survey. I would because I would like to it. point out though there was not a rock movie coming out in theaters at the had, same time. Had it had a Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie been coming out at the same time, then this would then yeah, no one would have it, it, cared. It, well he would have he would have probably still been third place. But Well Birdman four, if it has the rock in it, it would be, it'll be good because he's the franchise saver. Yeah. So maybe that's what Birdman Four needs. Well, maybe, and you know, Birdman Four, we could have The Rock be the bad guy, and then Birdman Five, he becomes a sidekick. Actually, wouldn't that be the shits if they decided to say make a Birdman movie and not like and not not like within the context of this universe, they just take that character and then decide to make a big stupid blockbuster out of it. Probably yeah, with please, The Rock. Please don't. Please that, don't. That, do that's this. that's just too delicious for someone not to pass up. But do you think that this picture? Because Michael Keaton said, you know, and, you know, of course, they're going to say this in interviews, but he said he couldn't relate less to a character that he's that he's ever played than this guy. But whenever we heard about it, it, it's just obviously it's but obviously it's referencing his his career as Batman. Do you think that anyone else could have been in this and it would have mattered? Uh, Yes. His name is Val Kilmer. You really think? No, honestly, you think? No, 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 no. Um, I but I I agree with his viewpoint because I think um, Michael Keaton appears to be a very, a very awesome sort of average dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, uh, much like, you know, the, he's Tom Hanks could play Michael Keaton in the Michael Keaton biopic. Um, so I, I can understand that because this Regan Thompson character, he is just, he's an awful person. He is not a guy that I really like, uh, honestly care that much about as like, uh, he, 
you know, he's just sort of a, a shitty human being. Um, and maybe, maybe that's a little unfair because it seems like some of that is, is not only a him deciding to be, you know, an asshole, but also, um, he seems to have some emotional things, you know, mm-hmm. going on in his life. Uh, Michael Keaton, uh, on the other hand, seems like a pretty well-adjusted human being. Well, and what I lo- what what what's interesting about that, and we'll talk about this in a second, is <clears throat> Michael Keaton didn't really do anything wrong, so to speak, for him to just disappear off the face of the earth. It's almost like after Batman Returns, and then after Multiplicity was his his last, you know, mainstream movie star thing, uh, and that didn't do that well. But it's not like it was so horrible, or he uh, didn't pull a celebrity or anything. Multiplicity did very well in. My living room as a child. Yes, and that's all that matters. That, it was that played is, multiple times. That is a movie that I would rent multiple times. Well, and I've heard other people say that that that, that they were all about it. So maybe it's one of those things that just it was blockbuster they, worthy, but not movie theater. They, they were not testing this guy as like a ten year old. Yes, I will see multiplicity because Michael Keaton's in it. But uh, so he didn't really do anything wrong. The people who whose careers fall apart and then they have to come back, the Robert Downey Juniors. There, there's that something happened to prohibit them from becoming with him. It almost is like, you know, I don't, I don't care. You know, I'm, I've made money and I'm not getting stuff that I want to do. So I'm going to go off to Montana and live in Montana, which is what he did to me. I've always kind of put Michael Keaton in the Rick Moranis. Uh, exactly. Yeah, catalog, yeah, yeah. Where, um, he, it's not like he did anything wrong. It's not like he totally bombed. He just sort of, it seemed like he had disappeared to become a normal human being. I'm getting ready to be really depressing, but what happened with Mirka Moranis, because I decided to look it up, is his wife died and he went back to raise his kids. And he hasn't done anything since. Well, on that note, uh, that is our review of Birdman. Um, we'd love to hear your take on on it. Uh, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Um, I don't think love is the right word. If you want to email us and let us know what you thought about it, we'll entertain it. We will read the words that you write to us, or at least dictate that an intern reads them. Exactly. And and I don't know if Chris feels the same way, but the meaner, the better, quite frankly. The, uh, wor- the more vi- vitriol direct- you can throw at us, that's what I, I desire. Okay, direct, direct those messages to Hunter. Yes. Um, but e- yes, email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. And uh, yep, maybe we will uh, read your, your comments on a future episode. With all these boats bleeding trash, it gets ridiculous. If you try to find some truth on the vertebrates But the water just reflects whatever it sees It might have once seen you but now it only sees me So I reach down and break the surface with my fingertips And lose myself in the current of the vertebrates Okay, so we kind of ended on the idea of this being Michael Keaton's comeback picture. And comeback is almost like a cliche in and of itself, wherever you have someone who's been gone forever and then they come back and then they're and then supposedly they're they're mainstream again. And what usually happens afterwards is they do a superhero picture. I'm thinking uh, most notably of like Robert Downey Jr. or even Mickey Rourke, both of them coming back. And then the first thing or Thomas Hayden Church, all three of them. What is going on? It, it People who. Uh, had a celebrity or were minor celebrities come back, do it, get it, do uh, you know, really popular mainstream work, and then all of a sudden they've come back and they're stars again, and everyone loves them. And presumably that's what would happen with Michael Keaton if the 
if the Hollywood sto- true Hollywood story happens as usually dictated, even though he's already done a superhero picture. So Chris and I were going to talk a little bit about uh, people who we think are ripe for a comeback. So Chris, you have a pretty interesting choice from what I hear. Uh, yeah, I I think I actually did my my homework a little wrong, but I'm fine with it because I want to talk about this. Um, I really, really would love to see Gene Hackman get, you know, get a I, I, comeback is probably the the incorrect term. It's uh, he. Well, he would be like like Michael Keaton or Rick Moranis in that he just went on. He, he literally retired and he's writing novels now. Right. And, and that's the thing is like and to look back on his career, like he had a pretty full career. No one's going to say, oh, well, he was cut so short. Right. He he did something that people don't do. They were he retired. I mean, it's, yeah. what the, it's what normal people do in their careers. He And they just don't do and film them. They just die. And and I'm just, you know, I'm a jerk who doesn't want him to enjoy his golden years. I I need more Gene Hackman in my life. And here's here's my problem. Gene Hackman's last film was a little gym called Welcome to Mooseport. Uh, have you seen this movie? I have. Starring another person who should probably is probably right for a comeback, Ray Romano. But yes, I have. Um, so Welcome to Mooseport is it's not it's a totally inoffensive uh, like it's it's a film that I'm sure my mother loves. Or would love if she was the type of person that actually saw movies, which she's not. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's such a slap in the face sort of swan song, I guess. Like for him to, I guess, maybe, I don't know what the story is behind it. Maybe he had some commitment for one more picture and it was like, oh, well, we got we got the the Ray Romano guy and, and we got you yeah, on the hook. Yeah, it's essentially a Ray Romano comedy vehicle to try yeah, and transition and him from for, TV to movies. For those of you, for those of you listeners at home who have no idea what we're talking about, because that movie, I feel like came and went, maybe it was... It's like 12 years old, probably. Um uh, but it's basically the campaign. The movie was Zach Galifianakis and Will Ferrell uh, without all the dirty words and the way over the top. The, the storyline in and of itself is funny, but the execution was just brutal. It's a Saturday Night Live skit that they tr- stretched out over two hours. Yeah. See, no, I would say I would say the campaign fits that even even more to a T. Like, welcome to Mooseport. Like, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. It's it's a perfect I guess put butts in seats, popcorn movie sort of thing. Uh, but it feels like a slap in the face to, um, to an actor who really like, he could be the only good thing in a movie. And I would watch the movie. Well, Mooseport may be an example of that. Uh, and I would watch the movie because you're going to get something out of Gene Hackman. And what, well, what's kind of interesting about that is to him, he may not care, you know, he may just be like, okay, I'm ready to retire. I mean, another guy I'm thinking of, and maybe he, I, I, maybe he could be mine. I, he wasn't mine, but is Sean Connery because his last picture was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is objectively bad. No one well, likes League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's mother hates it. it um, it's it's a it's a bad picture by any stretch of the imagination. And Sean Connery is just probably like, you know what? I'm ready to play golf and live my life out. That's yeah. He's he's got the monies. I mean, but I wouldn't put Sean Connery in the same boat as Gene Hackman though, because Gene Hackman. Is an actor, Sean Connery. Well, converse. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Gene. It's kind of movie star versus actor. However, you could also say that Sean Connery is more of a uh, uh, an icon in that regard. That's you, that's fair. 
given that he was such a successful movie star and he is almost he he if i were to do a bad scottish accent about you know exactly who i'm talking about because he was a, a movie star with a capital m so but i don't think it's really i'm i i just almost kind of viewed it it is disappointing in many ways that that's their last picture but that's not how they view it i'm sure what they view it is i've, I've made all the money i'm going to make or i want to make and so now i'm going to retire to a life of leisure and golf I suppose so. Maybe I'm just jealous. So I did my homework wrong. What is it that, what did you bring to this? Um, well, actually I was, I was halfway thinking we'd just talk about the cult of the comeback. Okay. Um, which we, you know, kind of already did with the fact that it seems like certainly in, in recent years, it, every season has a new comeback kid and that comeback kid this season would be Michael Keaton. And I would say like a year ago, you and I had this conversation wherever I said, I'd really like to see Michael Keaton make a comeback. And I don't even think I was aware of Birdman at that time. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of it either. Um, it it may have been, I'm sure it was in, you know, at least pre-production at the time, but I didn't know that he was having, having come back, having such a meta sort of comeback at that. Exactly. And so I, I had been aware, like maybe two or two years ago, he had had a deal with HBO. And this was right whenever Boardwalk Empire had come out. And so I was kind of thinking, wow, this is an absolute perfect match made in heaven. Michael Keaton, who probably isn't going to be above the name title, uh, you know, above the title actor anymore, and then HBO, which <clears throat> gives a lot of liberty to to the to the creative talent. So I thought, wow, this is really exciting. And then nothing happened. I think the story was 2011, 2012, something like that, and then nothing happened. I thought, okay, well that that kind of blows. And then this happens. So he was, actually was my comeback. Is he was the comeback I was really really wanting, and now presumably it's happening. Let's talk a little bit about. You mentioned that. Uh, you know, you feel like anytime someone does get a comeback, it's generally with, you know, a superhero vehicle. Uh, well, no, it's not generally with a superhero vehicle. It It's with Thomas Hayden Church. He did Sideways, which no one really remembers, but he did Sideways, was nominated for Best Supporting. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> people remember it. It's just people, people don't talk about it with their heads up their asses as much as they used to. Yes. It, it's so yeah, Sideways. But he was in Sideways. He was in like what was it? Airplanes or pl- what was the USA show? Yep. Okay, exactly. He was in some sitcom back in the early '90s, and then was in Sideways. Got oh, ex- okay. Oh, there God. we go. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about now? Yeah, Wings. Wings. Yeah. So he was in Wings, uh, and then did did this, and so get, got nominated for supporting actor, and then he went and did Spider Man Three. Uh, Mickey Rourke did the wrestler. Hold on, hold on. Let's rewind a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, I believe you're leaving out the uh, the pinnacle of Tom, Thomas Hayden Church's career. That being, drum roll, please. George of the Jungle, gentlemen. Oh wow, you're right. Oh okay, that okay. That's my comeback, Brendan Fraser. Because here's the thing about Brendan Fraser is no one, no one, he, he's, he's, he's always just a reliable hand. He seems like a genuinely nice, sweet guy. Even if you don't like his work, how can you dislike him? What is the last thing you remember seeing Brendan Fraser in? Don't look this up. Okay. <laughs> off the top of your head. <laughs> that I saw him in? Yeah. Or that, or that, you, that you remember him being in? That, uh, that Extraordinary Measures. With him and Harrison Ford, who also is in need of a comeback. Uh, no, I. Here's what I want. I want Harrison Ford to trade places with Gene Hackman. Harrison Ford, you're done. Please retire. You have enough money. Take that earring out, or take your retirement money and buy a giant diamond earring. I don't care. You're you're not like. I'm, I'm glad you feel as passionately about this as I do because I think I pointed out to you before that. 
um, I would say from 1977 Star Wars to 1997 Air Force One, batting average, there's not a cooler human being alive, not just movie star, but a human being on the face of the earth other than Harrison Ford. And then Earring, uh, what was that? Uh, a a Six Days, Seven Nights? Six Days, Seven Nights, and then also the one with Kristen Scott Thomas. It's just a strain of not good, a, a strain of bad it's stuff. Ju- it's just retire, man. You you can't even read a teleprompter. Just just it's, retire. It's, it's, you are ruining my childhood right now. Like, well, I then do you think that the new Star Wars will be a comeback, hmm. or do you think that you can have a comeback when you're playing the same character again? A comeback for him? No. Um, and, and honestly, I don't think Star Wars vehicles are really that great for stardom anyway. Like, I feel like the Star Wars movies are even no matter who's in them, uh, it's not like that makes or breaks someone's career. Like. Hayden Christian, for example, um, should it, or Jake Lloyd, for example, neither of those guys have done anything really. I think Hayden Christian actually has a new movie coming out that looks. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, Who knows? But, um, he is, so banning, no, I, he is banning Sophia Bush, I believe. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what that she's is. She's attractive. <laughs> um, so is that a person? So no, um, Harrison Ford, I, I don't think there will be a comeback out of, uh, out of the new Star Wars movie, and honestly, um, as I, I'm not very excited about any of those characters returning. I don't want to see Han Solo with a hemorrhoid pad and and uh, an earring and, and an earring, and you know Chewbacca giving him his medication every you know four hours. Now, do you think that with Chewbacca, like once it gets to the point wherever Chewbacca is very old, they have to put him down, uh, or should that happen to Han Solo? Like is Chewbacca like the family pet that like once he once he just he sits on the floor and no just... I think Chewbacca is going to outlast them all though right like it doesn't uh, Chewbacca has a much longer lifespan than but we don't know how long he lived prior to that's true this is so true. he could he could be reaching the end of his days and it's time to just you know tell tell Billy Solo and Jake Solo and all all the little Solo children that I'm sorry guys but Chewbacca is going to a better place and this is how they learn about death is by putting Chewbacca down. So are we going to replace Chewbacca with Lumpy? Exactly. Well, yeah, because Lumpy, since he was a child in the Christmas special, for those of you who don't know, um, he'll probably live for another 500 years. But Hey, guys, real quick pitch. Um, Reddit.com slash r slash Lumpy gifts. Do it. It's it's work safe. It's great. Um, just treat yourself. Um, okay, so back to comebacks. Probably the most notorious... The the one that kind of kicked off the whole comeback thing, cult, if you will, was John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. And then, of course, he went and destroyed it all over again with a series of truly bad decisions like Battlefield Earth being the most notorious of, of them. Um, can you think of any other comebacks? I mean, I, I think that was sort of um, – I, I think that's probably the best example, but I think Tarantino kind of at least – has tried to do that throughout his career a little bit. He's tried to do it. And here's the thing is uh, two other examples would be um, Pam Greer and then Robert Forster in uh, Jackie Brown. But the thing Pam, about Pam Greer to a larger extent there. Yeah. Obviously, and, the, like, and the thing about that is with his pictures, his pictures are so universes unto themselves that, that she couldn't have really made a comeback out of that partially because she was always just a, she was playing the same kind character. of a B movie actress back in the seventies, and so this just you know she was in a in a B movie in the in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Whereas John Travolta, this 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 he was a movie star, and then this showed that he could still work. Yeah, but Tarantino, the only as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only comeback he created was well, unless you want to count him with Thurman and Kill Bill. 
Maybe. I mean, but that was sort of a, I don't think that that works exactly the same way because that was sort of a in the stars anyway, Mm -hmm. if you want to see it that way. Um, But no, he, he does, he does a lot of, and I wouldn't even call it stunt casting, um, but he does a lot of casting of people who maybe aren't getting work, um, but are still perfectly capable of, you know, putting out a good performance. I think um, if it hadn't been for Nebraska, you could say maybe Bruce Dern um, in, in hateful eight would be, you know, a bit of a, a comeback sort of performance. We, I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah. And I don't like Bruce Dern. I don't, I don't, I didn't even, even looking back at his work back in the seventies, he, he was a shouter. Have you seen uh, coming home? I have seen coming home. Just a lot of shouting. I don't a remember him un- coming home. Yeah. though The Vietnam one. Was, yeah. 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 Uh, Wait, yeah. is, is he the, the he's, the, he's the he's kind of the mean husband. Jane Fonda's unpleasant husband. That's Bruce Dern. Whoa! Yes. yes no, that's, really, that's Bruce Dern. Yeah, that's Bruce no. Dern. Okay, so he he's the, you don't he's the one that killed John Wayne. Then yeah. Okay, is I, that what's going on? We're psychoanalyzing me. This is why I hate Bruce Dern because he shot John Wayne. Oh man, no, I I didn't realize. I I honestly, I'll I'll be perfectly honest. Like I don't know that much about Bruce Dern. Um, other than he's Laura Dern's father mm-hmm. and Laura Dern, um, who actually, honestly, Laura Dern deserves, deserves to come back. I, I'm not going to get off on that tangent See, I, right now. Well, um, I, I'm but, not sure that she was ever big enough to, or she, it's almost like it was just Jurassic Park and then David Lynch pictures. Well, and that's exactly, oh man. So Laura Dern when, in my child mind is her character in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my adult mind decided to totally, uh, subvert that by, you know, discovering, um, discovering all these David Lynch movies that uh, wild at heart and blue velvet and really playing these, particularly in wild at heart. Like that character is the antithesis of, of Dr. Of, Ellie Sattler. Yeah. Of my childhood vision of, of her. And, and in fairness, like it's, I'm putting her in a box that she doesn't belong in. It, yeah, it's one of those things. It's fine work, and that came before Jurassic Park, but Jurassic Park is obviously the 500-pound gorilla, as it were, in the room, and so that will always paint your view of her. Okay, speaking of Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum. Apparently, I think he's like See, in it. Okay, so I thought about Jeff Goldblum. Um, I think he's had enough sustained like because he's never been a leading man really right. like other than other than like the fly exactly yeah. um, some 80s pictures he's he's much better i i think in general as a, like the guy that shows up and um particularly like when i don't know jeff goldblum is going to be in a movie and and he shows or portlandia he's he's had some great moments it's just portlandia. that much better whenever he just shows up yeah and he does his jeff goldblum thing and like he i don't know if he's got like Christopher Walken style range, mm-hmm. or if he just people are okay with him living within that range, and so that's uh, that's how I mean. Uh, most recently, um, Grand Budapest Hotel, he's you know doing his Jeff Goldblum thing with his obviously fake goatee, mm-hmm. and it works. Like I, I don't know, I don't. I would argue that Jeff Goldblum never went away. He, he again, kind of like Laura Dern. It was just that there was the Jurassic Park anomaly. Then, then, you know, the loss. And actually, he had a uh, Jurassic Park anomaly and then Independence Day anomaly. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, it appears like he's a bigger star than he is or ever was meant to be. And he had a lot of mainstream credibility. But otherwise, he was always kind of an under-the-radar 
actor in that regard. Okay, who you actually you've kind of already indicated this with your response a second ago. Who does not deserve a comeback? I mean, beyond Harrison Ford, um, I mean, I don't have anyone off the top of my head that I, I really just like loathe. Um, I would say maybe, and I don't think she's really gone away, but um, maybe doesn't have the cachet that she once did. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't get it, man. I don't get it either. I don't think she was ever famous. It's just people put her put, people put her above the talk. Cause it's like, oh yeah, we'll we'll just make her a star, and no one ever bought it. I I don't know. I just I've never understood it. I mean, maybe she's just not my thing. Even I mean, she's in one of my favorite films of all time as as a character that I named my dog after. Uh, Margo- Shall how? <laughs> God, Margot Tenenbaum from the Royal Tenenbaums, and um, I just I just don't get it. I just uh, there's never been a huge appeal. Um, for me, I, I don't, I mean, and I don't think, I don't think she's terrible. She doesn't ruin a movie for me, but she's never the thing that, that really makes me love it. Uh, do you have someone who, who you feel? <laughs> this is going to be controversial. This isn't due to the fact that I dislike the person, but it's just due to the fact that they've given so many chances and they've continually squandered them. And that's of course, Nicholas Cage. No, no, you are wrong. He has you had wrong. so many chances, and he's. It's kind of one of those things. It's almost like an alcoholic who you realize this person just wants. This person just but wants Hunter, to keep drinking. He's in debt. He needs to get out of debt by saying yes to every movie he is offered. Yeah, apparently. Speaking of saying yes to every movie he is offered, he is in Left Behind, which came and went. Um, much like uh, much like the Rapture in 2012, um, it came and went, and no one noticed. And so, anyway, apparently that movie's budget was in the twenty millions, and given that most of those pictures in that genre are one million dollars, that almost entirely went to his salary. You have to, you have to believe. Well, and and CG planes, yes, and CG planes, bad CG planes. I, again, I like the guy, but it's one of those things. It's just how many times are we going to let him fall off the wagon before we finally say, "Look, brother, you're on your own." No, um, I I have to disagree with this one. Um, Nicholas Cage. I'll, let me just make a, a brief argument. Uh, Foreman, and then I'll wrap this up. Nicholas Cage uh, is one of those. I don't care how many times he makes a terrible movie. If he makes a great film, I'm going to. You, know, I, I will totally forgive him, and I will be first in line. But okay, that's that's fair. But what? It's not just making a great film. It's making a great film and coming back. Make, making good on your comeback, so you, and he's going to blow it. Much you, like John Travolta, he's going to he's going to have his comeback and blow it. Has he ever really? I don't, I would argue that Nicolas Cage has never really gone away, though. He just he just happens to make good movies every once in a while, and when he does, they're amazing. I think he just he's his batting average is very low. Much like we were talking about Harrison Ford, very back, low from nineteen seventy seven to ninety seven. He had a great batting average. Nicolas Cage is the exact opposite. I because well. I, I love his good pictures, even ones people haven't seen, like The Weatherman. I think The Weatherman's fantastic. It has some great moments, like when, when he goes out and forgets the milk. Like, he's he's having his little, like, inner monologue. Like, But he's just doing his Nicolas Cage thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Uh, I think that character is great. You know, the, the just neurotic Nicolas Cage character. Um, like, something like Adaptation. Um, where he's he's playing another, another neurotic person in the real life... Uh, Charlie Kaufman and his fake brother, right. Donald, um, or Raising Arizona. I he think, was wonderful in Raising Arizona. No, no, absolutely. The thing about Nicolas Cage is he completely lacks self-awareness, I would say. I think this is best illustrated by a story. And granted, this is just stuff you read on the internet. But supposedly, he was upset that he was not asked to be James Bond. I don't know what in what universe Nicolas Cage makes sense for James Bond. He wants to be the buffed out, beautiful action star. Well, he nobody, was Superman. 
Exactly. Exactly. You would think he would know better. You'd think Tim Burton would know better, except that he's, you know, he's he's an artist and he's weird. But um, Nicolas Cage, if he would be who who audiences want him to be and what smart directors know he can be and stop trying to be, quote, action hero, then he'd do all right, with the exception of, of course, The Rock and Con Air. But those are those are anomalies. All right. Well, I'm going to agree to disagree with you. Um, You know, guys, tell us what you think. who did we miss on needing comeback? Who do you think doesn't deserve a comeback that either they have received or you could see coming? Email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. I feel the welling up inside. I feel the way start to speak. I used to ask all kinds of questions. Now I just believe. Well, I used to be flu. I used to roll off the lips. Now the only thing rolling is the vertigris. All right, Hunter, here we are at the end of the show. Let's uh, let's close out with a couple of recommendations. My recommendation, and this, this has nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but my recommendation is a little-known film, which I'd actually like us to talk more about extensively later on, is uh, The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge, I don't like it. It's not it's not particularly good. It was a picture that came out in the mid-'80s. Is this the Bill Murray yes, movie? Yes, it's based on uh, W. Somerset Monaghan's novel in which Bill Murray uh, played a pilot who decides to become a pacifist in the midst of World War I after the death of one of his friends. Um, I would recommend this as, as kind of a, a novelty in not only 80s cinema but also in Bill Murray's career. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's a picture in which he very much plays the Bill Murray character, but in a picture in which that's not in any way, shape, or form appropriate it's kind of like if you took the great gatsby that picture from the 70s it's just very bright and sunny and kind of dull and then put bill murray in it and it's played seriously not for laughs if it were played for laughs it would have been brilliant but it was a hard drama and it just didn't work and so i would recommend seeing that it's only like an hour and a half so knock yourself out this movie didn't work go out and see it yes exactly well i have a recommendation that's sort of related to the topic at hand uh with with birdman i recently accidentally had sort of a billy wilder mini marathon and, um, you know, watched several things that I had seen, a few that, that I hadn't as well. Um, I went back and recently rewatched Sunset Boulevard and was sort of amazed at just the connections that that film has to Birdman in uh, the, you know, fading actor. Well, and actually not just not just from the perspective of like Hollywood picture, but maybe even like literal the story itself is uh, Sunset Boulevard. It's the only picture I can think of that's told from the point of view the narrative point of view of a person who's dead. The person starts the movie dead, and it's entirely from their point of view of, hey, I'm, I'm a dead person narrating this. And certainly in that era, um, and maybe in like we were talking about earlier, maybe that's what Birdman is, is maybe he's this is all in his mind. Maybe he's already dead. Who knows? But they certainly have a connection in that regard beyond just the fact that they're Hollywood tell-alls. Yeah, I mean, I would say Sunset Boulevard, um, definitely a, a very different picture in that, like, I mean, that movie is legitimately terrifying, um, there, there are several moments with Norma Desmond where just like as, as creepy as a horror movie as, you know, really anything I've ever seen, um, a beautifully, a beautifully written sort of, uh, somewhat narcissistic Hollywood film, you know, very much you can, you can kind of feel Billy Wilder's fingerprints on, uh, on it as far as, uh, the way that he, is glamorizing the screenwriter, even if he uh, happens to, you know, be in a rut, um, which also, you know, sort of ties in nicely to our 
our, our talk of comebacks. Because, um, yeah, of course, Norma Desmond was in, in the midst of a comeback, even though it was all existing only in her head. And again, maybe that's Birdman again. So I think what I've taken away from this is that yours is actually pertinent. Your suggestion is actually pertinent, whereas mine is just like, hey. Unintentionally, though. Yeah. It was just, I, I happen, happen to see it. And, you know, I think it's maybe a little bit of a cliche film school recommendation. But um, I would, you know, a, a double feature of, of Birdman and uh, Sunset Boulevard would would be a pretty, a pretty good little evening. You know, in many ways, I think that may, maybe we should just agree that just don't see the razor's edge. I wanted to provide a suggestion, and so that was my suggestion. But maybe we can just mutually agree that this has nothing to do with anything, and it just needs to be extracted from the conversation. All right, guys. Well, that's those are our recommendations. See Birdman and Sunset Boulevard back-to-back. I would recommend Sunset Boulevard first, followed by Birdman. Uh, and then if it's like 11 o'clock at night and you just have it lying around, yeah, you can't get to sleep. If you need if you need to put something on to listen to while you close your eyes, the Razor's Edge, get it at the library. Don't don't pay money to rent this. Yeah, not even the $5 bin at Walmart. Just don't do it. And that concludes our inaugural episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com, where you can find links to follow the show on Twitter or like it on Facebook. There you can also find a link to our brand new Tumblr account, where I will periodically be posting amusing gifts I make for movies, like Charles Foster Kane throwing a hissy fit. Music in this week's show comes from the great new album The Vertigris by Bo Jennings. Check him out at bojennings.bandcamp.com. And also, uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or would like to shoot us a big ol' heaping wad of anonymous vitriol that you can only find on the internet, please do so at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Tune in next time when we'll be reviewing the Neil Berkeley documentary Harmontown, in which he follows the infamous creator of Community, Dan Harmon, on a cross-country tour filled with Dungeons & Dragons, improvised freestyle rapping, and drunken blackouts after Harmon is fired from his own television show. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>